There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Rachna Shanbog, The Economist Finance Editor. COVID-19 has reshaped the global economy. Growth is projected to shrink by nearly 5% in 2020. Millions of people have lost their jobs. Governments and central banks have stretched the limits of their fiscal and monetary powers. Many businesses have not survived, while others have been forced to reinvent themselves. Six months ago, the world looked very different. With fewer than 100,000 cases and 3,000 reported deaths, the World Health Organization had yet to declare a global pandemic. The actions these newly affected countries take today will be the difference between a handful of cases and a larger cluster. As we prepared to record Money Talks on one of my last days in the studio before we had to switch to remote production, news came through that America's Federal Reserve had made an emergency interest rate cut. The virus and the measures that are being taken to contain it will surely weigh on economic activity, both here and abroad, for some time. It began to hit home that the world was heading not just for a health crisis, but for an economic crisis like no other. Six months on, I've invited my colleagues back, remotely this time, to check in on the global economy, from small businesses to the trading floor. Is it time for repeat prescriptions or a completely new economic diagnosis? To find out, I'm joined by Patrick Fowles, our business affairs editor, Alice Fullwood, our Wall Street correspondent, and Vijay Vaitisvaran, our US business editor. Hello. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Hello there. When we spoke in March, we just had one of the worst weeks for stocks since 2008. But since then, markets have come roaring back. The S&P 500 and Nasdaq have broken records. Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple and Alphabet have all reached all-time highs. Alice, how do we account for this extraordinary market performance? I guess I would characterise it as having had two phases. The first phase was policymakers had intervened. The Fed was cutting rates, providing more liquidity to various markets. And that intervention helped stocks recover. This second phase, which has taken place over the past few months, is sort of less clearly driven by by one factor. As you say, it has been accompanied by new highs in the value of many tech companies and a sort of run up in the share price of firms that investors seem to think might win or do well out of the pandemic. A more, I guess, bullish story on, on certain stocks and even bubbly story when you look at stocks like Tesla. And Patrick, we've been seeing lots about retail investors piling into the market. How much of an impact do you think they've had? I think it's more a a sort of symptom of a slightly kind of over the top mood rather than an underlying cause of 
of what the markets are doing. So who is driving it? I mean, I suppose ultimately, to some degree, it is central banks and and governments, and they've put in place a backstop, which has given everyone reassurance the economy is not going to fall off a cliff. And then, as Alice was saying, you have essentially institutional investors trying to adjust to this new world. And it will involve, it appears, a somewhat restrained level of growth and therefore very, very low interest rates, which means people are chasing around for anything that is growing or has a yield. And then they're also baking in a kind of view of the the post-COVID world in which a lot of technological advances are accelerated. And all of that has led to this sort of pretty crowded stampede into a small number of now very, very big valuable companies to the point that the entire stock market looks extremely lopsided, particularly in the US, but also notably in China, where the run-up in, in tech firms is as pronounced as it is on Wall Street. And Vijay, this is all great news for people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, who've been making lots of money. But there is a disconnect here between Wall Street and Main Street. What does this mean for businesses? You're absolutely right. The very wealthiest have, have gotten much wealthier on some estimates But if you look at the average company, and there are different indices that follow this, the S&P 500, of course, follows the big industrial shares. Even there, it's only a handful of companies that represent most of the gains that we talked about. Earnings at most S&P companies are not strong. But if you look at the, the Russell 2000 index, which looks at small companies, much smaller companies, you're actually seeing a phenomenal squeeze in earnings. They're having uh, terrible years. Many small businesses uh, either are on the brink of bankruptcy or in the next few months, as stimulus money dries up from Washington, as perhaps a second wave of the pandemic hits, as people return to school and aspire to normal life, I think we're going to see much more pain on Main Street than has been widely recognized in the stock markets. And Alice, just following on from that, how long do you think this disconnect between the stock market and the economy will last? It sort of depends what you think the sort of underlying reality is. I mean, one factor, either the stock market or the real economy has to catch up with the other. And the optimists, the investors clearly think that at least certain firms within the real economy will will recover or do well enough to justify the valuations. The other outcome could be that actually... People are over-enthusiastic and firms and the economy won't do as well as, as people seem to be expecting. That disconnect, it can continue for a while. It can't continue indefinitely. And sooner or later, these variables will have to reflect each other and, and expectations will converge. Let's drill a little bit deeper into the impact on individual sectors, Vijay. Have the sectors that you expected to be most exposed ended up suffering the most? So we've all seen big winners in tech, although I think we could have all anticipated Netflix would do well. I think we've seen tech do much better, perhaps even than its own boosters might have hoped, but that has created more room to fall as well. I I think that's something we need to think about. If you look ahead to see who are going to be the winners and losers, you first have to be able to answer a question that we cannot answer right now. And that is, how long are we going to live in the COVID age? Right now, we're living in a century of pandemics. There may be other kinds of zoonoses that cross the species barrier, and we need to be on vigilance going forward, as indeed our newspaper argued on its cover 10 years ago. But at this time, I think the part of the conversation we haven't had yet is it's not just about the role of government or business or the response. Unlike the great financial crisis, part of the problem with the current economic malaise 
is lack of demand or a collapse in demand in many industries. And that has a lot to do with people feeling afraid. Uh, and you tell me when most people will feel comfortable to get back on a cruise ship. And I'll tell you how the shares in cruise companies will revive. I'm being a bit cheeky here. But, but the point is that I think this could be longer than people think. The longer it lasts, I think that there is a danger that free spending consumers who have been the engine of economies like the US, like China, may remember what it was like not to spend, may like having cash in their pockets, may be worried about losing their job again, and we may end up with a more frugal consumer. And that would reduce, I think, the long-term prospects for a number of companies. I think that's a really interesting point, Vijay. It's something that research presented at the Jackson Hole conference made as well, the point that the pandemic would leave really long-lasting economic scars as people basically revise their beliefs of shocks like this happening again. Back in March, we thought the shock was mostly one to the supply side, but it's the demand shock that we're learning, I think, is going to last for much longer. I wondered uh, if each of you could maybe tell me what has surprised you or what you've learned from the experience of the pandemic so far. I guess one of the things that has come as a surprise is how successful the Wall Street banks have been at making money during this uh, this pandemic. Banks always do well in volatile markets, spreads widen, and there's more trading activity. So you'd expect the sort of trading arms to do well. What I didn't expect was that at the same time, you'd also see bumper revenues for capital issuance. And that's because financial markets had seized up. This was before sort of the Fed had done a lot of its intervention to sort of get things flowing again. But what you have seen is sort of a lot of firms rushing to raise as much capital to hold as much cash as possible. Huge equity issuance, a lot of debt issuance as well from companies that have been able to raise capital. And those firms are now bragging about holding several years worth of cash on hand as their sort of war chest to weather difficult times. The thing that's really amazed me actually is how the global trading system and supply chains have held up. So at one point it really did seem like the perfect storm because not only do you have the trade war escalating over this period, but you also have people unable to move around very easily around the world, and then all sorts of logistical problems and bottlenecks at ports and other transportation nodes. So you would have thought that there would be some really quite serious problems. And in fact, it doesn't seem to have been that bad. You know, the food system globally, which is very, very dependent on complex transport networks, has worked really well, essentially. Not so well if you're a poor person in Africa, but that's more a question of your income than supply. Apple continues, it seems, to be able to make phones with the world's biggest and probably most complex supply chain. And even the shipping companies, which, again, you might have thought would be hammered, the mood seems to be optimistic and Mesk, one of the biggest said not so long ago, you know, that it still expected a reasonable year financially and, you know, the outlook was picking up. So it's interesting that that global system, incredibly intricate, also increasingly incredibly unpopular, seems to have actually weathered the perfect storm. VJ, what about you? I would have thought that times of extreme stress would lead to lots of comfort food and unhealthy behaviors. And we've seen some of that. Some snack food companies have done well. But it's astonishing how people have turned towards their health. If you look at exercise equipment sales of Nike and other companies, how quickly people have moved towards healthier brands. So I think in an interesting way, we've actually seen consumer behavior pivot in ways that might be longer lasting. And if we, again, were to look out beyond the immediate pandemic phase to what might be some 
things that would define uh, the consumer economy. I've mentioned frugality as one of them. I think another thing might be a boost to those brands and products and services that can promise you, if not longevity, at least a certain healthfulness. And I think that's one thing that's going to come out of this pandemic. I didn't expect. Uh, I feel obliged to say here that I'm doing my bit to prop up snack food companies. So they're not going to go out of business <laughs> yet. Um... You were always a contrarian investor, Rajna. So there you go. <laughs> this is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'd like to talk next about the role of governments and central banks a little bit. Back in March, as we were sitting down to record, we got an alert saying the Federal Reserve had cut rates out of sequence, so not at a scheduled meeting. It had convened a special one to do so. Jay Powell has just announced a change to the way it's going to think about inflation. Alice, tell us a little bit about the implications of that. What the Fed seems to be communicating is this idea that they will let inflation run a little hotter for longer. The sort of flip side of that is therefore that they'll be even more reluctant to increase interest rates, raise rates from close to zero soon. These are expectations that investors and market participants already seem to have baked into their thinking about how the Fed would react going forwards. Rates are expected to stay at zero for at least two years. And at the same time, you have seen a recovery in inflation expectations. So if you look at inflation-linked bonds in March, investors were expecting that inflation would be negative next year. Now they think that it will be closer to 2%. Those two perceptions are reflecting what the Fed now seems to be saying, which is that even if inflation returns to close to target or to normal, they won't be rushing to raise interest rates. I guess that sort of reflects their perception of the the balance of risks, which suggests that it's sort of better to keep the economy on life support rather than sort of rush and potentially disturb or curtail any of the shoots of growth that, that might return. What the Fed is saying is that they'd rather err on the side of caution. And that certainly seems to be what investors are expecting them to do as well. I guess it's also striking how slow central banks are to change. I mean, it's been 10 years of low inflation. So change is really quite incremental. It's the conceit of central bankers, I think, that these tiny technical changes and some of their targets really have an impact on inflation expectations of ordinary people. Uh, And the reality is, I think, sort of tinkering around doesn't really increase the, the odds of inflation or growth taking off. And maybe the most interesting element of it is it shows the Fed is beginning to and is prepared to sort of experiment with its mandate. Uh, And that's happening at an interesting time when in America there's this big partisan fight over economic policy and a big drive from the Democrats to have a more interventionist approach from potentially the Fed itself. So it may, if you like, be a kind of Trojan horse for bigger changes, or certainly that's one possibility. Patrick, has anything surprised you about how governments and central banks have responded? Well, they've thrown the kitchen sink at this. 
In terms of actual innovations, I think there are two that are pretty striking. One is in Europe, where the push to issue joint European debt or in the Eurozone, joint Eurozone debt has really moved forward significantly. That's a really big moment in the history of the single currency uh, and has huge long-term implications. You know, Europe borrowing, if you like, collectively. The other one I think is less visible, but equally profound and strange. And that is that governments and central banks have encouraged a whole series of moves to allow borrowers forbearance. So it might be that you're not paying your mortgage, you're not paying your rent, you might not be paying your commercial landlord, you might not be paying your credit card bill, a company might not be uh, paying its bank. And really the extent of that forbearance culture is hidden, but probably enormous. To Vijay's point about, you know, if this goes on much longer, maybe the economy gets into a much tighter spot. It's one of those things where I think it's okay if it's for three or four months. But if we have a situation where people aren't paying interest on debt for much longer than that, it has a big ripple effect on the health of the financial system that will be difficult to deal with. So I would say that culture of forbearance, which is almost something that's reminiscent of how China operates or somewhere like India in terms of its financial system, that culture of forbearance becoming common in rich economies is a really interesting twist. We're reaching a crucial moment now with a lot of these schemes coming to an end or needing extending. Vijay, do you think governments need to be extending this for a period or is now the time to start weaning people off this forbearance that Patrick's talked about? It really depends on your philosophy of the world. I think uh, in Europe, we see a different view than we see in the U.S. And even within the U.S., we see a vigorous debate, very different views of the role of government, the role of the market, the nature of this crisis. America tends to have a more, uh, let's say, cruel, but more dynamic form of capitalism, but has tended to have quicker recoveries in part as a result of that. Companies have been freer to lay off or fire employees in Europe. Typically, they're kept on the roster and government support helps companies keep employment levels up. So I think we're going to have to see which model does better but I do think, though, in, in, with the presidential election coming up in a couple of months in the U.S., this is one of the questions, the meta questions that people will vote on is uh, what is the view of government that Americans want? So I think it's an open question at this point. That offers a chance for me to ask each of you what sort of shape you think the recovery will take. Uh, there's been lots of talk about V, U, W shaped, swoosh shaped, K shaped, I think, recoveries as well. What do you think, Patrick? Yeah, I'm, I'm tempted to say the shape of the recovery or the best description of it is a question mark. I, we don't really, we really know because we're in uncharted territory. But what one can say with some confidence, I think, is that the level of GDP will be lower than it would have otherwise been for, for some time. I, there will be quite a significant permanent loss of output. And that has big implications across the economy and, and households. I agree with Patrick that uh, it's not just the government's response. It's also all of us, right? Uh, in a sense, if you're looking for an economic, robust, booming recovery, we have seen the enemy. The enemy is us, our own fears. And we have to see how people get accustomed to living in a pandemic age going forward. But in terms of other risks, I think in this case, you'd also have to look at the company response. We've seen companies, as Alice pointed out, hoarding cash, in part because the Fed has made it possible in America. Uh, we're seeing massive uh, cash piles at companies that are probably in uh, snooze mode with that cash. They're not investing it to grow. They're 
generally not plowing it into R&D at higher levels than before. The exception to this, of course, is is the healthcare industry, pharma and biotech. But broadly, you're seeing a signal from the corporate sector that they are getting ready for an age of diminished expectations that may last some time. That's on one side of the ledger. I hope that's not the prevailing view. The view changes over time, but we're certainly seeing that. And I think that is a risk because, again, corporate behavior, the willingness to pursue new markets, to disrupt incumbents, to to invest, to grow, to have a positive view of the future is a big part of the animal spirits that move an economy, the real economy. And I think that at the moment, those are muted. And Alice, following on from that, do you see lurking risks in the financial system? What you might have expected is that this very difficult period would weed out a lot of very weak firms and you'd be seeing a lot of bankruptcies. There'd been this huge run up in corporate debt. Firms are more indebted than they have ever been before. And you might see a retrenchment or a lot of bankruptcies. And you are, of course, seeing a sort of smattering of bankruptcies in particularly badly affected sectors like retail. But because of the extensive amount of support that firms have been given. It does seem as though that when that support eventually begins to be pulled back, it may be revealed that a lot of firms are are in pretty bad shape and are in much worse shape than than they were before the pandemic. And you have this sort of class of, of zombie companies or, or firms saved by this almost hiatus period for debt payments and things. And so I think there is a sort of lurking risk that things look quite bad once a lot of the support is pulled back and that that will have ramifications for investors. And I guess to a lesser extent, banks, banks are sort of relatively less exposed to these risks. It's more investors that have taken on those risks this time around. And there could be a nasty period of either low returns or or lots of bankruptcies once things normalise with the pandemic. We're nearly at the end of the show. And just before we sign off, it would be great to hear from each of you what needs to be done now to save the global economy. So, Is it the same medicine as what we've seen until now? Do we get the diagnosis wrong? What sort of prescriptions would you offer to governments, central banks or businesses? Vijay? To me, the first, second and third answers to that question are get the pandemic under control. We know what caused this crisis. This was not a financial collapse. It was not regulatory failure or some of the traditional reasons. Certainly an example like the United States, which has done a terrible job of communicating, of managing, of respecting the science of really enforcing coherent policies of testing. The U.S. needs to do a lot better, but other countries as well. Learn from the best in the world. If you can get the virus under some reasonable control and communicate to your people that you have competent technocratic leaders that are doing so. And here I would point to, say, South Korea or or, uh, Taiwan as examples of countries that have done this then I think that you have a much better chance of inspiring that confidence, both among business, but also among the general public, that perhaps they should go out, they should spend perhaps recoveries in prospect. Absent that, I don't think a robust recovery is is around the corner. I mean, I agree with Vijay that the most important thing is to get the virus under control. I think that that's the first best solution. The, the second best solution is, to a large extent, sort of what policymakers have have done, which is to provide ample support to the economy in this time of need. I do not envy the Fed and and other central banks or or governments going forwards, though, because a lot of the decisions about when to remove support will be extremely difficult and will sort of necessarily require a lot of trade-offs. You saw the Fed saying that it would be happier to accept more inflation, perhaps, rather than risk curtailing the recovery. And 
there will be that sort of trade-off embedded in many of these in these decisions at the same time to remove liquidity facilities. So the supporting financial markets, there will be risks and costs associated with that. It will be very difficult. The best that we can hope is, is as Vijay said, that the virus is brought under control and that when life support is removed from the economy, that things recover quickly. And Patrick, your parting words of advice? I think both Vijay and Alice are absolutely right that on a short-term horizon, getting the pandemic under control, um, making sure that there's enough support is critical. I think beyond that, and again, assuming a vaccine appears, it is time to start thinking about the longer-term implications. And economically, the massive rise in debt, the extension of huge implicit and explicit government guarantees across enormous swathes of the economy, the fact some industries will have to face obsolescence really is a kind of staggering set of challenges. The task of a government will become how to remove and contain that level of support and kind of shrink it back to normal levels without blowing up growth. And then coming up with a, a new set of ways to grow the economy, whether it's new technologies, green energy, a kind of positive agenda for trying to get rich economies back onto a higher growth path. Well, perhaps in six months' time, we can speak again to see how much progress governments and central banks have made. Patrick Fowles, Alice Forward and Vijay Vaithusaran, thank you very much. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you so much. And to read more of Patrick, Alice and Vijay's analysis, subscribe. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer for the best introductory offer. You can find the link in the show notes. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. While you're with us, please take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Rachna Shanbhog, and in London, this is The Economist. <laughs>